I know some of you have been with us before when Amatanasanti has visited with us. Uh, Amatanasanti Bhikkhuni has been meditating for over 30 years and has been a Buddhist nun for over 20 years. Uh, after 20 years in monasteries associated with Ajahn Sumedho and Ajahn Chah, she returned to the U.S. and founded Awakening Truth, uh, an organization whose mission is to bring the Buddha's essential teachings into modern secular life and to cultivate conditions that support awakening for the manifold assembly. Uh, Amma's work spans Buddhist teachings, depth psychology, subtle body somatics, non-dual meditation, and the divine feminine. She's taught meditation internationally for 15 years and currently is based in Colorado Springs. I'm glad you could be with us again. It's very lovely to be back. It's nice to see familiar faces, and I'm just happy to see. I'm happy to see that the community is flourishing under David's guidance and support and ministry. It's wonderful, and also this is the first time I have been in this space, and it's a nice space. Namo Aetasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Asana Sambhutasa Namo Aetasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Asana Sambhutasa Namo Aetasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Asana Sambhutasa One of the things that I deeply love and respect about the Buddha's teachings is the practical wisdom of his approach. He was not an Aquarian. <laughs> I am an Aquarian, and I haven't recovered yet from an extraordinary visionary mind that looks at huge pictures and takes ages to get it grounded enough into simple steps that are manageable. But he was very practical, and so when he laid out the Buddhist teachings, oftentimes the way he taught was he taught sila. He taught the precepts so that help people have a container and have a very clear sense of uh, integrity. And so, you know, the five precepts of refraining from killing and refraining from stealing, refraining from sensual misconduct or incorrect speech, or refraining from drinks or drugs which cause carelessness, creates a mirror for where a person is navigating outside edges which then are very difficult to live with and feel at ease. He also taught the middle path. And the middle path is a is the path that both honors the need not to indulge in sensual pleasures, but neither to engage in self-mortification. So in sensual pleasures, you know, this is the sense that if we have everything that we want, that is where our happiness is going to come from. And so it's this collecting more and more and more and more. And everything needs to be just so. And that sense of it having to be just so in order for our happiness to be guaranteed. But the other extreme is self-denial, self-mortification, where we don't get enough to sustain our basic needs. And he also said that that was also not the right path. That was not the path of awakening. And so the middle path comprises the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path gives us a very clear description of the way to cultivate. And it's beautiful. This Eightfold Path is comprised of right view, right thought, right action, right livelihood, right speech, right concentration, and right mindfulness. And in my sense of the way we need to cultivate in our postmodern world, one of the hubs of the right Eightfold Path 
is very community-based, where we look at each spoke of these eight folds in terms of a community context of how we are relating and supporting each other. And that's a whole talk in and of itself of how that works and why that's important and the way that fits in to our postmodern era as opposed to the traditional framework, which is the framework that this context has come out of. I'll say a little bit more. You know, one of the things that happened with the industrialization of the world and the moving into a technological world was a a deep-seated alienation from ourselves, from nature, and from each other. And with that came a rampant sense of purposelessness and meaninglessness. And so instead of having a sense of valor and defending national pride, our sense of belonging comes from having things and doing things. And so it has shifted from what it used to be in a traditional context where we were embedded in our villages and our clan systems and in our um, heritage into a contemporary system where there's an awful lot of people who don't quite know exactly where they fit or where they belong or what is the purpose of us doing any of this in the first place. And so when we transpose that as the reality of our cultural context and try to bring alive these teachings which took place and began in a traditional context, then we have these uh, places to navigate. And so for me, the community context and developing community and learning how to relate to each other in a way that supports right understanding and right view, that helps, gives each other the courage to speak with integrity, to engage in right livelihood, to make the right efforts, are part of what we need to do now in order to fulfill the Eightfold Path to fruition. It is no longer um, something that works to feel that we can just isolate ourselves out and be in silence and have that be the fulfillment of the whole path. Because the way we engage with each other or relate to each other is very much interdependent and interconnected. And so it's my personal experience from what I've observed living in community for so many years and in what I observe in dealing with students and meditators in various different communities, that the focus really needs to be in how the community can build in order to support the fruition of the Eightfold Path. And so when I come and I see this community, which I've come and visited a number of times, and see David's input, and see the way that he's held the space to allow this community to grow and to flourish and to become as strong as it is, it brings me joy. Because I feel that that's actually a really important part in our development in the West as meditators. What I want to talk about in addition to the middle way and the middle path is the non-dual aspect of practice. And so I was delighted with the reading that David came up with today because it absolutely touches it to a T. Yeah? So in the Satipatthana Sutta, the third foundation of mindfulness, it's very explicit that there's no judgment about whether we are experiencing something which is beautiful or ugly, whether we are experiencing lust or whether we are experiencing desirelessness, whether we are experiencing a mind that's concentrated or a mind that is dispersed. In the third foundation of mindfulness, it says very clearly, very explicitly, that the way of practicing is to know what is arising, And that's it. There's no need for an opinion or a judgment or to change it. There's no need to make it something different. There's no need to gather up the things that we think are wonderful and to displace or to get rid of the things that we don't like. What is needed is to know what is present. And so the third foundation of mindfulness is a direct key to opening up this field of non-duality 
where we are not judging what's right and wrong and good and bad. We are open and present to things as they are and allowing them to be known in awareness, seen in awareness, and dissipate in awareness. And as such, this instruction that comes forth in the Satipatthana Sutta is an unbelievable key to freedom. Because many of us don't live our lives immersed with that understanding. We have a list of things that we like and a list of things that we don't like. And we have some kind of an internal war that goes on trying to gather in and collect the qualities that we like and trying to dispel and get rid of the things that we don't like. And this is not a way of dismissing the efforts that are needed to transform what is negative and challenging. This is at another level, which is that when there is awareness that is sufficient to know things as they are without identifying or absorbing or getting stuck in or caught in the contents of our experience, it's sufficient to witness and just know it. To know anger as anger, to know loving kindness as loving kindness, to know lust as lust, and desirelessness as desirelessness. There's no need to do anything with what is arising. Can you feel the freedom in that? Can you sense that? Can you sense what an unbelievable opportunity that is to meet what is arising without having to make it go away or make it stay? So when we look at the experience of resting in awareness, we can begin to get a sense that awareness is not limited to our body. It's not limited to the edges of our skin. We can begin to get a sense of an awareness that pervades everything. And this awareness was there before we were born. This awareness will be there after we die. This awareness is timeless and there is no condition that we can make or do or create or get rid of that alters this all-pervasive awareness. It pervades everything and is timeless. And so, as we go through our lives, and as we develop in a spiritual capacity, and as we move through the process of learning about sila, of integrity, learning about the middle path, learning about the application of the way to bring skillful thought and directed thought to what is arising, then we also can learn how to rest into this all-pervasive awareness that has always been here, that will always be here, and is in no way dependent on the conditions that are present. This opens us into a field that is expanded, infinite, timeless, limitless, luminous, luminous, radiant, and undefiled. This is our nature. This is what is there when everything falls away. This is what is there when we let go. Completely. This is not separate from unconditioned love. It's two sides of the same thing. 
Unconditioned love has the capacity to be present with things without discrimination, without censorship, without limitation, without judgment. It is the warm, connecting element of awareness. Awareness sees things clearly. Unconditional love has an interest to connect and is unbounded. The other night, I was at a group, and somebody was saying, you know, when I practice, I feel a little bit more relaxed, and I have a smile on my face, you know, and it feels good, but what else is there? You know, why else do we practice? What is this for? And I would say that the whole of the path can be summarized in the freedom and the joy of what happens when we let go of right and wrong and enter into a field and rest there. This field that is beyond duality, that is all-inclusive, that is, does not separate and does not exclude. It is a field of all-pervasive awareness that is the nature of our mind's essence. Awakening to that is awakening out of suffering. We are not getting rid of suffering. We are awakening out of suffering. It's a radical shift in our relationship to how things are. We can access that in our bodies. We can access that through the earth. We can access that through space. We can access that through the luminosity of things. We can access that kinesthetically. There is every different place as a stepping stone to come into the same understanding. We can access that through love. Through a vast, open, expanded spaciousness of love. Our minds are luminous, radiant, and undefiled. That is their nature. The thoughts we have are conditions that arise in awareness, are known in awareness, experienced in awareness, and cease in awareness. And like the clouds that pass through the sky, they do not impact the sky. There can be clouds that light up into magenta colors. There can be gray clouds that obscure the light. I've been in places just before there's been a tornado and the clouds are green and dark and menacing. It does not affect the sky. Most of us spend our lives identified with the clouds obsessed with the clouds, organizing the clouds, hurting the clouds, changing the colors of the clouds, getting upset by the fact that they're clouds. And when we change our perspective and rest in awareness that is all-pervasive, 
we are at one with the sky, which is vast, which is all-inclusive, which didn't have a beginning and doesn't end. Now, when we are resting in this awareness, it does not negate the conditioned world. It doesn't say that it is okay to do things which are harmful. And it doesn't say that we no longer have to attend to things which are skillful. It doesn't negate the conditioned world or our relationships in it. In the same way that Newtonian physics and quantum physics do not negate each other, but they are different descriptions of a reality that fits into one whole. And so the Buddha's path takes us through an enormously skillful development of the conditioned world and allows us to come into contact with that which is unconditioned and know that that is our nature. That is our essence. When everything else falls away, what is left is love, without boundary. And so it is right when one is resting in that or knowing that words are very inadequate to describe what this feels like and how imminent it is, how absolutely right here this experience is. It's not in India. It's not contained in a particular form. It's not limited to a particular time or a particular age or a particular set of practices. And yet, understanding the all-pervasive nature of awareness and resting there using what comes from that experience as we bring it into the world of our relationships is to me the maturation and fruition of this path I want to pause in this theme for a moment and come back to what David mentioned, which was the vision of awakening truth, and just say a little bit more about that, and then change the format and open it up for questions and answers and discussion. I feel an enormous blessing having spent 20 years in a monastery with the kind of rigor and training that comes from the Ajahn Chah lineage. It has been invaluable. But I have also been able to see and experience firsthand that there are some places where the tradition was not able to address. And one of the things that 
is apparent is, is that independent of the enlightenment of the leaders of a community, they cannot necessarily see the cultural biases that are embedded. And coming from a traditional context and a traditional society and coming into the West, there's been an apparent discrepancy between the enlightened values of awakening and where we are at culturally. And so one notable place that that stands out is in the discrepancy in gender between the way the monks and the nuns are treated or related to. And in this culture, it just simply doesn't wash. It doesn't work to say, this is an enlightened process, but the women are in a relationship of subservience to the men. But the other way that I don't think it works is is that in a traditional monastery model, the people who have precepts and the ones who are higher ordained have exclusive right to input into the wisdom of the community. And the people who have not higher ordained precepts or are the lay community have very specific roles but are not included in the wisdom discussions in the community. And here we are living in the West, where most of the Dhamma teachers are lay people who have their own practices, their own realizations, their own communities, their own insights, and a tremendous amount of work in navigating some of the territory of how we need to develop psychologically in order to be healthy spiritually. And to me, it makes absolutely no sense to say that simply as a result of precepts that this wisdom cannot be incorporated and included into a community development model that inputs into the wisdom of how it works. So going back to the Aquarian with this van vision, what I envision is a Dhamma village. A Dhamma village that has space that gives room for everybody to practice with their own precept levels which has community places where we practice together and community places where we share together. But people who are observing different precepts also have different needs so that there would be ways in which different needs would also be able to be taken care of. In a community village that was based on the Dhamma, you know, there would be a sense of not only a high level of integrity, but also that it would be a city based on generosity. You know, where the needs of the city came through service rather than through commerce. So this is a vision, and it is not a small vision. It's actually quite a big vision. And so for me, what I feel it is my calling to do is to speak about it and write about it and embody it and to see if the conditions ripen, that people feel a hunger for this, feel a need for this, feel a longing to come forward to help make this happen, to step up and to begin to start knitting together the fabric that will be needed in order for a vision of this magnitude to begin to be realized. Because for me, it isn't only about creating the space for the nuns to flourish, which hasn't really happened in the past, but creating a space so that the many-fold assembly of all beings who are practicing, of all genders and all precept levels, can come together in a way that supports awakening. A community of this nature would have the teachings that support understanding how to live in right relationship with the conditioned world, but also be deeply based in these non-dual teachings which understand all-pervasive awareness and unconditioned love, and how these two come together. Now, one of the things which I have seen in myself and have observed in communities is a very deep tendency 
to use the transcendent teachings that we have in order to bypass the challenging developmental work that we need to go through. And so without diluting the Dhamma, there needs to be a maturation and skill of the psychology of what happens for people to enable them to do that and to steer clear of that as a pathway where integration and individuation is encouraged rather than bypassing and non-development for the sake of a transcendent goal. I think I'll stop there and change the floor and invite your comments and responses and questions and dialogue. And then at the end, we'll dedicate. Could you repeat the questions back so that both can hear? Yes, thank you for reminding me. And if I forget, thank you. Questions, please, comments. Yes, please. It's an odd question, but I'm curious. Why did you choose Colorado Springs? (laughs) Why did I choose Colorado Springs? It was circumstantial. When I left England, I had um, nothing. And because my father had been living there, I had been traveling there for 14 years and had students. And there were a few students who invited me to come and help support me. So that was the initial reason. And then when I left there a year ago and traveled around to visit different communities and and saw the reality of the communities that I was visiting and then realized even though there's certainly plenty of room for more support, the support that I have in some ways is more substantial than in some of the other communities that I visited. So it's my interest not to be um, just located in Colorado Springs, that's where I happen to be, but to come and to teach regularly in Denver and Boulder. And on Sunday morning, I have a satsang on the telephone, and people call in from all over the country and occasionally from England and Canada. And to my surprise, it's remarkable the depth that we can go in inquiry over the telephone. And so there's even people who call from down the street, you know. So, <laughs> really, you know, four blocks away. And it's just, it's lovely. It's just, a, it's a lovely thing. And so, you know, that's where I happen to be right now. But that's, I'm not fixated on that as the final destination. In the back. So the question is about the conditioned realm and opening up to the unconditioned and unconditioned love and how these two relate to and inform each other. That's a map question. And I'm more of a contemplative who will respond to that as a practice question, you know not as a philosophical structure, but as a way to deal with it, yeah? You know, for me, um, for a whole variety of my own personal conditioning, you know, I had such a deep longing to kind of escape the, the world of the conditions. And for me, I had this deep fantasy that, that enlightenment was just that, this complete, total, final escape from the world of conditions. And what I experience is, is, is that, is that the, the, the liberating insights that I have had are not the end point, they're the beginning. 
and the beginning of how we bring this level of understanding into the immediacy of our relationships with each other. So the relational world, the conditioned world, is the practice ground to ground and embody and make known the understanding and the insights that we have. Yes, please. Thank you for talking about the discrepancy between the Buddhist monks and nuns. It's one thing thing in the Buddhist teaching that I've never understood. Uh, It doesn't seem fair, logical, like everything else in his teachings. I'm wondering, do you have to start your own order or something like that in order to step out of that? Well, there's... The question question is... um, Thank you. Uh, an empathy with the with the mentioning of the discrepancy between the monks and the nuns, and, and a recognition of how you can reconcile that against against the Buddhist teachings when it absolutely doesn't make sense. And then the next question is: is, is do you have to start a new order in order to step out of that? And so um, one has to re- recognize that the the teachings came from 2,500 years ago in a society that had cultural values that are different than a boulder. (laughs) (laughs) Not Colorado Springs, boulder. (laughs) But the other thing that one has to realize, and what I've seen from scholars, because that's not my skill set, is that a lot of the stuff that has been embedded in as the discrepancies actually was stuff that came after the Buddha's life. So that served the people who were writing down the scriptures, but it actually, according to text-critical analysis, was not what the Buddha said. Okay? So, here you have a tradition, and with most traditions you've got scriptures, and who knows what happened to the scriptures. I mean, in this case, the scriptures were written down 500 years after the Buddha actually spoke them. And so, you know, with any history of scriptures, you always have this. of What is the real word of the master, and what is the word of the transcribers, and what is the political bias of whoever was in power at that time, and whatever was working with them. Okay? This is a whole complicated conversation, but for me it's actually extremely simple. And the reason why it's simple is because the Buddha's first principle is to do no harm. And I know in my bone marrow, and I know this, this is not an opinion, that when you discriminate, that is profoundly harmful. So if I take the Buddha's first principle to heart, that gives me the courage to sustain a willingness to look at some of the traditional embeddedness and say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Now, with the bhikkhuni ordination, there are there is now the the, the lid has been opened up and there are bhikkhunis emerging in all over the world now. So the ordination, full ordination for nuns is now available in the Theravada tradition which is like hallelujah. yeah. And many different groups of people have a different interpretation of what is the right way forward. yeah. And not... And in each different group, they have a different sense of how much they are in alignment with the Buddha's original teachings and how much of it is an interpretation according to contemporary society. For myself, what, what, what motivates me is as I have such a deep appreciation for the value of the container and yet a passion for recognizing that liberation is moving out of suffering rather than creating more suffering. <laughs> and that there has got to be a way to hold these things and allow something to emerge that genuinely helps people flourish. The point of the monastic tradition was to create ideal circumstances to support 
the complete, total liberation from all suffering and to share that with all beings. I know that to be true. Does that help answer your question? Yeah, I had one more squeeze in with our chips. Um, you mentioned uh, spiritual bypassing. Could you just give an example of what you mean by that? The question was about spiritual bypassing, and if I could give an example to illuminate that. If a monk says, the tradition is fixed, the monastic discipline is fixed, it is embedded in patriarchy and hierarchy, and if the women don't like it, they have to leave. And then you ask him about his relationship with women and his sense of his connection with women, and he says, I have no problem whatsoever with women. There can be the possibility that the, the transcendent understanding of the teachings is being used as a way to not let him see the fact that this actually has a lot to do with women and a lot to do with power and a lot to do with a deep-seated um, issues that have never been attended to. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yes. Um, this is something I've been sort of struggling with for quite a while, mm-hmm. and it's the how how to reconcile the teaching on right effort, mm. you know, in particular the teachings about when recognizing the arising of an unwholesome state to do what you can't do, dissipate it. And when you recognize the arising of a wholesome state to do what you can't hold that wholesome state, mm-hmm. and how that fits with this unconditioned state and practice you're talking about, because they seem to be diametrically opposed to each other. Like one is saying, just taking what's there and accept what's there and be with what's there. And the other one's saying, yeah, but if something not good is happening, you should do something about it. Unwholesome is happening. You should do something to change that. So, summarize it, yeah. Yeah, okay. So the, the question is, this is that in the, um, in right effort, there's very clear instructions to cultivate what is wholesome and to do what you can to diminish what is unwholesome. And how that teaching of working with the conditions in order to bring balance seems to be in direct conflict with these teachings on uh, of just uh, letting things be. Okay, one has to recognize that, that the teachings are contextual. And in one's own practice, one needs to become very adept at knowing what the context one is dealing with, which also has to deal with one's own capacity. And where the non-dual teachings go skittlywampus is that people take them and attach to them and then do not recognize when they're in an unskillful situation that needs attention and effort in order to bring it into balance and just use the idea of non-duality as a superimposition on top of the unskillful situation and let that be the justification for non-effort. Okay? Context is the key. So when you are sitting in a situation and mindfulness is well established and you're resting in all pervasive awareness and an unskillful thought arises, what's the problem? It's known, it's seen, there's no attachment, there's no identification. Where is the problem? Okay, so in a case where there's no problem, there's no need to do anything. In a situation where that is not the case, where an unskillful state arises, there's identification, there's attachment, and there's following it, there's believing it, there's a papancha festival of proliferation around it, 
you know, there's being hijacked and you're off and running and designing and manipulating and conjoling. Then there's a need to interact and to cool it out, to chill it out, to bring some balance into it and to actually stop that patterning. There is a problem. Yeah, but, I mean, you could say, but all those things you're just saying, you know, the propancha, the da 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 all that stuff happening, are just more things I should be observing. I should be is different than I am. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so where we absolutely need to be careful is how we should upon ourselves. How we impose shoulds on our practice about where we are supposed to be and how we are supposed to be practicing, which is totally different from where we actually are. And it happens all the time. I mean, as an, it's, this is a sweet example, but it's a mental one except too. I was walking with some people in England, and we were walking, and the sky was completely blue. There was not a single cloud in the sky. It was totally blue, and it was raining. And we could see it was raining because our skin was getting wet and our clothes were getting wet, and it was raining. And the person looked up at the sky and said, it can't be raining, there's no clouds. (laughs) And we do that to ourselves all the time. We have an idea of how it's supposed to be based on preconceived notions, and we superimpose that on the reality. And part of the skill of being adept and meditating is to be present time, present awareness, present response. What is needed right now? And what is so humbling about this journey as a practitioner is how incredibly quickly it shifts. I can be very well established in mindfulness and awareness and be completely fine with chaos that's emerging and not reacting and not identifying no problem. And something happens and it knocks me and all of a sudden I'm in the consciousness of a two-year-old. And it can happen in an instant and out of the blue, a totally unwarned, unprepared, I have no sense that that was going to happen. Now, if I impose onto a two-year-old what I was doing as a mature practitioner in a state where there was no problem with no identification, I've missed the boat. And usually that's the recipe for prolonged suffering. So what's needed is to be absolutely immediate and responsive with what's happening and how am I relating to it and how is that changing and what is my capacity now and what is my capacity now and what is my capacity now. It's humbling, that's all I can say, and requires absolute honesty. Are there any other questions? We're going to need to wrap up soon. I was just at teachings of Ken Rinpoche, and Ken Rinpoche is visiting in Colorado Springs, and um, he was talking about the dedication of merit, and said, you know, of all of the motivations in the world, the motivation to be a Buddha is the most powerful motivation, because the only person in the world who's got the skill and the ability to help all beings is a Buddha. The only being in the world who's got the skill to help all beings is a Buddha. So to to want to be a Buddha, to be able to help all beings is the best motivation. And so when teachings are offered, when people gather, when there's meditation, when there's a gathering, there's a a kind of a, a, a wellspring of goodness that comes from that. And when you share that, wellspring of goodness with all beings. The image that he gave was like, you know, if you take a glass of water, you know, today it was hot. It was 90 degrees out, and sometimes it gets even hotter. You put a glass of water out in the hot summer, it'll evaporate. But if you take that glass of water and you pour it into the ocean, it will not evaporate. And so to share the blessings of a time like this together with all beings is like pouring the goodness of what we've accumulated into the ocean. That it stays 
until our own deepest aspirations ripen. And that's a blessing. So I'll close with a little chant. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration Through the goodness that arises from my practice May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue My mother, my father and my relatives The sun and the moon and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge and surpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide, the Sangha my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all peace, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you. May you keep your hearts warm and your practice rich and your community flourishing.